when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome, listeners, be you human or replicant, to episode 78, Blade Runner, the final cut, which is the only cut. We are extremely excited to be talking about this movie this week. It has been a long time in the coming. Uh, we waited patiently for Blade Runner 2049 to come out so that we could piggyback and do these two right one after each other. And I, for one, have just been going crazy all week. With me, as always, is my best friend and co-host, Patch. Hey, what's going on, everybody? And today we have another special guest with us, super fan of Blade Runner, James Harleman of Cinemagogue. James, hey, how you doing? Pretty good. I don't know, super fan is understating it a little bit, though. I'm glad you... I was going to actually say that might be understating it a little bit. (laughs) I figured we would get into that eventually. (laughs) So listeners, uh, we are going to spoil the heck out of this movie, as we always do, but since we have James on, I thought we would talk a little bit about what we've been doing this last couple weeks, or James, what you've been up to in the last many weeks. Is there anything out there in the entertainment industry that has sparked your interest, uh, made you angry, or made you really, really happy? <laughs> well, I'd love to have a good report, but... Uh... And, and, you know, I, I would, there's definitely not feeling the film that I went and saw this last Tuesday. Uh, and that was Jeepers Creepers 3. Oh, no. Now, now, hey, I was feeling the first, I think the first movie is a, a great legitimate horror flick. And the second one was kind of boilerplate, but at least was still really well done. This, this was a fathom event, one night only. I actually wanted to to just go have an enjoyable time. I didn't expect Shakespeare, but man, this this might be the least satisfying film experience I have had, not just this year, probably in the last five years. I, I don't know if they were ran out of budget, rushed production. It 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 felt a little more like, like Sharknado 6 than a Jeepers Creepers movie. So if you went into it with the right frame of mind, a bunch of friends that like to play MST3K or Rift Tracks, maybe it'd be a good time. So there's still a way I think you could you could redeem your time with that film. But otherwise, boy. So it's interesting. Was it because of the actual film quality of the, as a movie? Or was uh, anything, any subtext? Because I know that the director... Uh, has been a convicted. I want to. I don't want to get this wrong, but I, I think he's been convicted of some sort of child sexual abuse, um, and he's served some time, and he's back out in the world. And this is, I think, his first film since doing that time. And from what I understand, there's some pretty questionable material in the movie for someone that just got out of, you know, jail and prison for that kind of crime. See, I didn't. I didn't get anything from that from the film. I know a lot of people. Yeah. You know, it's a great question for for another forum or debate, I think. But they talked about, uh, you know, I saw a lot of chatter. Don't support the film. Don't support the film. And it, it's one of those questions. Well, but if someone served their time, I don't know. There's a lot of stuff in there. I I went just to, you know, I enjoyed the first two films. So I wanted to go support it. I think maybe it was all the flack got the budget cut. I'm not sure. Production values were strange. Parts of it didn't even look color corrected. So it just looked unfinished in a weird sort of way. And then a lot of the effects just looked like they had to rush and have bad sci- bad sci-fi channel CGI. And But the problem, you know, there was, the script was terrible. The acting was, was, 
like watching a, a bad, you know, 70s, uh, you know, made for TV movie. It, it was strange how it failed on just about every level. Uh, I know, I know you weren't too pleased with a certain Transformers film and, and I, <laughs> I think I felt equally dismayed by that one, but, but this has taken the, uh, sort of the raspberry crown so far for 2017. <laughs> so, so I guess Patrick, then if, if you're going to go see a one horror movie, then it shouldn't be Jeepers Creepers three. Well, yeah, you've really <laughs> just doubled down on the displeasure for me. If I'm going to, if I'm going to subject myself to just being ridiculed with jump scares and all that nonsense, I want the story to at least be compelling. You know, it was that way for me. You know, I love the story, but just cover my eyes through half of it. This one, I just probably <laughs> throw up for a number of reasons, none of which would be because I was freaked out too much. <laughs> well, I saw something that was a little less scary, I would say. Uh, and it's a movie that also is releasing this week in theaters, and that is Battle of the Sexes. This is, um, it's, I, I thought going into it that it was a tennis movie um, about the famous Battle of the Sexes between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs, uh, in which Bobby Riggs was a 55 year old former champion and had gambling debts and, and just couldn't really handle the loss of the spotlight. And this is in a time where women's tennis was starting to find its legs. I'm starting to grow traction. Billie Jean King was number one in the world, and she was also an extremely passionate uh, fighter for women's lib. She was outspoken, always arguing for equal pay, equal treatment, um, and not getting it. So Bobby Riggs kind of wanted to capitalize on things that were going on in the world at the time and put this match together. Pretends to be a chauvinist. Uh, at one point in the movie... Billie Jean actually says that she doesn't believe that he truly feels the way he feels, that he's kind of trying to be a showman, but he goes over and ab over and over the limit, you know, to be extremely anti-woman, uh, just really to the rude, rudest possible extent. Uh, but it sells tickets, and this all leads up to this event, uh, which, spoiler alert, she wins. It's history, so I don't feel like it's that much of a spoiler. <laughs> and, you know, it, it's a big deal for women's lib. Now... The interesting thing about the movie is I think it's very well done. It's pretty well shot. Uh, Acting-wise, it's phenomenal. Emma Stone, man, uh, if she doesn't just get better and better and better with every role, it's it's kind of unbelievable how good she is. And um, and Steve Carell as Bobby Riggs is equally interesting. At first, you, you have a hard time because he's kind of being that funny guy, and so you're like, oh, it's, it's The Office, Steve Carell. <laughs> but then... He has a couple of, you know, moments of humanity that really bring him into this character specifically. Um, for me, like I said, I thought I was going into a tennis movie. There's not a lot of tennis. It's really about not only the women's liberation fighting that, that Billie Jean King is doing, but it ends up being more about her secret life as uh, a bisexual uh, for lack of a better way to put it um, she has an affair with a, another woman and it's kind of about how this is taking place at the same time and it's how she can handle that how does she manage that how did how did she survive going through this this trauma in a lot of ways and the way in which the film frames it was kind of a problem for me and, and really knocked it down a bit. Um, not so much just what actually took place uh, in their relationship. It's actually handled pretty 
uh, pretty darn tastefully, to be honest. Um, there's not a lot of... It's not gross, the, the way they handle the, the relationship between the two. The two uh, but they do treat the marriage extremely poorly, in my, my opinion. There are no consequences. The husband just kind of says, oh, well, this really sucks, and acts sad, and then just goes along with it. And then all you get in the end is a, a post-credits, you know, text stinger that says, after many more years of marriage, they got divorced. And Billie Jean King lived forever, happily ever after, with her lover. Um, and, and it was just kind of like, hmm. It didn't, it didn't really... It, I wanted there to be more of an emphasis on what really was taking place here, because we're, like, essentially romanticizing an affair, the whole movie. Mm. Um, and so... That was a problem, and that that took took me out of my enjoyment of the film. But otherwise, it's an interesting story, and it, the history of it is pretty neat. I did not know. I don't know if you guys knew, but I didn't know um, some of the things that sporting women did to help women's equality come about. And Billie Jean King was a big part of that. Yeah, I didn't know anything about the the movie before actually reading your review. Which was uh, which was really good, by the way. I I, I thought um, capturing your whole experience was just really good. And yes, it sounds like I'm just kind of beefing up feeling film, and maybe I am. But on a personal note, I thought it was a really good review. But no, I hadn't I had not heard or known about that whole, um, not only that match necessarily, but also about the surrounding circumstances and how big of a change, how much she was fighting for, and really kind of how that hints at the pulse of what's happening in our culture today so it's fitting that it released today or not today but released this year and this period of time because it's very much a a relevant story that is worth uh, talking about it's also i will say the bill pullman performance that is anti-independence day bill pullman so as awesome as bill (laughs) pullman is in independence day as the president or lone star as much as you want to root for him and you know he's just a good guy he is the character in this movie that you know signifies all of the actual chauvinism out there in the world. Like he wow. doesn't want to give them equality simply because he doesn't like them. And I mean, and it, and it comes out very much that way. He, 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 it's not undercut by anything. It's a true, deep belief that women should just be in the kitchen and you know make make babies. That they don't have any right to request the same and equal pay as men. It doesn't matter to him. He is, he's extremely pro man and uh, he serves as that character. And so it was kind of weird seeing him that way because I've always liked him as an actor, you know, like, or as a character, he always plays roles that are positive. (laughs) I'm I'm trying to think of many other roles where he has ever been not kind of like a villain. Yeah. I, I can't think of any, (laughs) Definitely Rack not my celebrating independence with that role, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> Zing. There it is. <laughs> what about you, Patrick? Did you have anything for this week? I did not. I wish I did. And I'm in the process of finishing a book. And uh, there's a movie that is on my list. I'm going to probably kind of pitch those in the next couple of weeks. But I wanted to finish both of those, obviously, so that I can give a full rundown on my enjoyment or lack thereof. So, Wait, what, what, wait, what is this thing you call book? I'm not <laughs> yeah. sure. Well, it is has. That, is that a different kind of movie? I'm, yeah, it's it's. Well, James, it, it is on my tablet somewhere. It's it's that's sitting a per- there. That's a perfect segue. It's this kind of thing that you wrote one of. So maybe you could tell our <laughs> listeners 
what it is you do. I know I briefly mentioned the word synagogue. Why don't you tell people what that is? Oh, synagogue's a, a passion project I started years ago. I was teaching a uh, teaching a film class where we, we'd watch a movie and, and debate and talk about themes, and and that that led into a website, cinemagog.com. I I tried to pick something no one could spell, but I love the idea of talking about spiritual themes in film, and so cinema, 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 and a synagogue kind of coming together. Uh, it was based on something I think it was Martin Scorsese said actually, and, and in one conversation that cinema was kind of the 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 pulpit of the church of the 20th century. So. I, I got fascinated by that and then wrote, as, as a, a young man growing up, just being a massive film aficionado, part of that sparked, in fact, all the way back in 1992, watching Blade Runner, the director's cut. Um, but uh, as a lifelong film fam, and, fan and then also as uh, a man of faith, I wanted to, to put down different ways that Christians could perhaps look at film, reasons to engage certain genres and types of film, sort of a... a countering many of the objections I think they have about engaging with that section of the world and and basically a defense for diving into the world of cinema especially controversial and ones that can spark good conversation like the movie you're just talking about and so really giving people the tools and also the ways to counter some of the typical objections either for their own mind or you know just or as then they deal with people who want to criticize their movie viewing choices well, I love it. I gotta admit, and I so you were actually a an integral part of my personal journey towards getting to where feeling film is right now, uh, and Patrick Patrick as well. Because when I first discovered film podcasts, there were there were yours, your film and theology, and then film spotting were the two that I kind of broke into listening. <laughs> And are what inspired me and got me excited about the idea of podcasting and talking about movies for a hobby and for fun and for others. Um, so, yeah, I, I highly recommend listeners, Cinemagogue, fantastic, fantastic book. It's a quick, easy read. It will, will totally change the way you watch movies. Um, you you oh. can't go back once you, <laughs> once you do this. Uh, you will see things in a whole different light. Um, you'll pick out themes that you would never have noticed before. And I know Patrick... We'll echo everything I'm saying. He's a big echo, fan. echo, echo, echo. Hey, I'm a fan, <laughs> fan, fan, fan. Yeah, it, it's true. I I've read it a couple of times, and mostly just to continue to remind myself of purposefully engaging in film. Uh, feeling film gives me the opportunity to do that from an emotional standpoint, but I really try to create a dual experience when I'm watching a movie, especially for the first time, to find not only the emotional takeaway uh, for for this podcast, but also finding some theological. Uh, not purpose, but theological roots that, that could exist in all these things. And it's been really great to be able to dissect movies on multiple levels and be able to give them purpose because then I can open up conversations with people who enjoy films in general and say, well, Hey, here's what I noticed. And when you're particularly in the, in the, uh, in the faith-based industry or faith-based community, it creates a lot more in-depth conversation. And, um, what that does is for me, it's helping build community with different individuals. So I'm grateful for it. Um, I think it's got a lot of fantastic stuff to uh, to to read on you know multiple times. So I I appreciate it personally as well. Oh, thanks guys. I, I you know I, I love I I know I just you know bagged on Jeepers Creepers three pretty hard. It almost goes one thing that it's done even for me just to be it's chronicling my experience was even if I feel like, taking away one nugget, one line, one 
one moment that you know, it, well, you know, your connecting point. Like if if there's just one thing re- that redeems that time, uh, either just for me personally or in a later conversation, it makes it all worth it. I think some people approach always looking at you know, is this whole thing a completely satisfying experience to me? Mm-hmm. It's like you know what, it could just be it could just be half of half of someone's quote that just really sparks that chord and ties in with with who you are, what you believe, how you see the world, or or maybe challenges it a little bit. And that that makes that makes movie going worth a fun, even when it's ninety percent terrible. <laughs> <laughs> totally for agree. sure, for sure. Well, uh, last little announcement before we get started in just that October is here, listeners, and so we have picked our five movies that will be voted on for our October donor pick episode that our patrons will be choosing. If you're interested in that, uh, feel free to hop over to patreon.com slash film. We have recently lowered the reward tiers, so you can actually get a vote and be a part of that, that picking process for a dollar a month. Um, it helps us to keep the show going, and with my laptop recently dying, my own fault, mind you, I spilled coffee on it, but uh, we probably do need to upgrade some equipment (laughs) relatively soon, Uh, and so depending on how uh, support comes in, we will be able to do that and just continue giving a better experience for you, uh, the listeners. So, patreon.com slash film. The five movies that we're doing for October are, let's see if I can remember them all, Goosebumps, Ghostbusters, Scream, Beetlejuice, and Poltergeist. Oh, it's too hard to choose. That's that's yeah. what people usually tell us, and that is the goal. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, so your vote will matter if you are so interested. All and right, just, just, to let, just to let you know, they have been vetted by me and <laughs> have been approved. So that's no true. Way. I did have to say, Patrick, what horror movies can we pick? Because he's such <laughs> not a fan of the genre. Uh, all right, guys. Well, let's get into this. Uh, like I said earlier, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about this movie. Um, we we did, for this purposes of this podcast, we are can, we are discussing the final cut, which I said earlier as if it was for all of us, but it is my personal favorite. Um, I don't know about these guys. It's Patrick's personal favorite because that's the only one he's seen. Yes. So we're going to start with a couple of, a uh, little, a little bit of backstory. Blade Runner was released in June 25th, or on June 25th. 1982, directed by Ridley Scott, Alien, Thelma and Louise, Gladiator, Black Hawk Down, big filmography. It was written by Hampton Fancher and David Peoples, and it was based on the book Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by the great science fiction author Philip K. Dick. The music is by Vangelis, mostly known for uh, Chariots of Fire, and it stars Harrison Ford, Rutger Hauer, Sean Young, Daryl Hannah, uh, William Sanderson, and the eventual Captain Adama, or Admiral Adama, excuse me, Edward James Almost. So, did I just say Edward James Almost? I think I did. <laughs> you, almost, you almost said his name right. You just yeah, said I, Edward James right. Almost, correct. Um, <laughs> he's almost a human. He, he wasn't quite Edward James yet. He was, he was getting there. <laughs> that's almost actually, Edward James. That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. Well, Patrick, uh, normally we would let our guest go first with his impressions, but I know what he thinks about this movie, and <laughs> I don't know what you think about this movie. So I would like to start with you, sir. Your first viewing. How did it go? Uh, you know, overall, it was really, really good. I was, I, I didn't know what to expect going in. I've heard so much about Blade Runner from 
uber fans who were like it's the most amazing movie ever and i was kind of under a lot of pressure because there were two people that were going to be on this podcast who were like you better like it or friendship is hanging in the balance i mean at least from one of you so whenever i um whenever i uh whenever i went into this i i was like okay let's not lie to ourselves let's be honest and um let's get ourselves into a position where we can just really appreciate this and so I came away from this just really, really appreciating it. I, I thought overall the story was fantastic. I thought that it definitely felt like a movie from the 80s. Uh, all uh, your Big Trouble in Little China, kind of your, your kind of your, your dark, dark, uber, you know, just overwhelming kind of scenery. But what I appreciated about this movie more than anything besides the, the story was the fact that um, the, the fact that you have an ambitious story that's being told at a time when technology may not necessarily encourage it. Um, I was reminded a little bit of Tron and how the creators of that movie were trying to do things that were forward thinking, not only from a technological perspective, but also from a, maybe a story point of view. And so watching it with that in mind, seeing these young or young casts of, of characters kind of playing these roles really enhanced my enjoyment of it. I thought it was fantastic overall. Um, I, I want to watch it again because I think that Blade Runner is a movie that's best served on multiple viewings because you can miss certain things. You're, the initial viewing, you're just trying to get into that world. And so I'm going to probably try to watch it again this week before we dive into to 2049 because I really want to appreciate it for what it is and not just for a, Hey, I watched this for the podcast, but overall my initial impressions were impressions were that I really enjoyed it. Excellent. Well, good. You can stay. We won't hit the eject button on the, <laughs> on the feed and just do the rest of that. Sweat. Here we go. You pass. Yes. Um, all right, James, what about you? I know you love the movie. Um, so how did your deep, deep affection for this film really develop? Boy, well, I, I want to jump in and make sure I tell, uh, just recommend Patch Watch, if you have a chance. I know Aaron might disagree and say the final cut's the only cut. But I would say, uh, now that you have seen that, check out, optimally, the international 1982 cut, not the U U.S. theatrical release. But either, either one of them, just to get the perspective of the history. It's, you're not going to have a vastly different movie, so you'll still be able to appreciate it, but you will get some variant pieces which could certainly enhance going into 2049 so i don't i don't know aaron final cut only cut we are no no about? that that makes sense if you're if you're i mean i've seen them so i have that background and now for me it's just going to be the final cut but yes yeah. i do guess i would agree with that okay well i wasn't allowed to see this of course i i was you know i was probably eight years old yeah just about eight years old when it came out and so, of course, I wasn't going to a rated R movie anytime soon, but being a big Indiana Jones and uh, Han Solo lover, that's like I, I knew about this movie. I wanted to go see it. So I think as a kid, it was something I desperately wanted to see, but but wasn't going to be allowed. So this this was kind of the uh, J James is on his own. He has you know, the his parents aren't around. He can rent a, a VHS tape and it was hard to find, actually, around around 1990. Uh, but then the, they came out with the director's cut, not the final cut, but pretty similar. And and so finally I got my hands on it. So there was sort of a coming of age piece to it that I know definitely got has has been a piece of that. Uh, and and yet finally, I mean, in some ways, it was 
one of the first times I encountered a, a mature science fiction film. So that, there is always something about it being first, but I also think uh, it was the first time I encountered, I think for me personally, there was something really bizarre. I didn't, I've noticed it later about other films that I like and, and not in the uh, haggard, not, not in the, when I say that the, the guy coming back, I don't mean that, that, that second wind in a Rocky movie where he's beaten down and almost done. But when the movie begins and a character is kind of washed up or has been, I, I have always gravitated to that. And I'm not sure if it began because of my first watching of Blade Runner, but it's one of the reasons I think I loved and felt a lot more enjoyment out of the Dark Knight Rises, the third Batman film than a lot of people did, because you had that, that same element of having been great once, having lost all of that and, and kind of being just being, you know, hating what you have done, having all sorts of mixed feelings about it and kind of being washed up. I, I've had an affinity for stories with that kind of protagonist ever since. I, I don't know if that was, you know, prophetic. I don't know. Maybe I was <laughs> looking forward to my future be, has been status. I, I have no idea, but uh, <laughs> there was something just, strangely attractive and, and emotionally connecting with me in, in that idea. And then, of course, that as you see, you know, that this washed up, dehumanized character of Deckard, then meeting somebody who's allegedly less human, but has more spirit and passion for life than he has. And that there's there's just those that that incited something in my soul. It's just never really been matched by other films. So it's it's why I say it's my it's still my favorite film of all time. Wow. Well, that that's awesome. Uh, I love hearing how that came to be, um, because I think, especially when we talk, when we're talking about somebody's favorite film of all time, there's always a, a deep emotional connection and reason why um, I could do the same thing, you know, when it comes to Lord of the Rings or even to some extent La La Land and my obsession with that in the last about 12 months. Uh, but for me, I'll say Blade Runner did not hit the first time around. So Patrick, mm. you're you're okay with you're actually ahead of the you're actually ahead of the game to be honest because for me I didn't like it I didn't like it that much the first time. Now Aaron's on the hot seat. Get him. Hey, hey, I've come around. But um you know, when I first watched it, I watched it without full attention. I will say I don't I don't think I was ready for the deep intellectual movie that I was going to get. I thought I was going to get fun, entertaining sci-fi. I saw Harrison Ford, Ridley Scott, and sci-fi, and I thought, oh, this is going to be like Alien and Star Wars put together. I mean, like, duh. Like, of course. <laughs> and and that's not what you get. And so uh, I had some issues with, like, costuming and just trying to trying to get my head into the 1982 space. I guess I will tell you, so I was, I don't know, what what were we, three, Patrick, in 1982? So <laughs> I, I definitely did not see it in the theater. Um, it, it was, <laughs> I was in my late 20s early 30s so it took me a while to get around to this and i just wasn't that into it i didn't think it was anything special and i wondered what the heck everybody in fact james the reason that i watched it was because you had said multiple times i'd listened to so much of your stuff and you'd mentioned how it was your favorite film and i was like wow really <laughs> so what's wrong with this guy <laughs> <laughs> so uh yeah but but then you know it, it kind of stuck with me and I remember thinking about some things afterward and, and especially questions of what it meant to be human. Um, and I really enjoy AI stories in general. They're probably my favorite 
subgenre within science fiction and science fiction being my favorite genre and just this idea of what makes us different what what is a soul um and i and i I think that a lot of that is faith-based i don't don't think there's anything wrong with that but that is definitely where some of my fascination with those concepts come from and so i watched it again and i said i'm gonna pay full attention to this movie and i did so and that was when i really got blown away because i paid attention to the details and i picked up on a whole bunch of different stuff that i hadn't noticed before the language wasn't just lines coming out of actors' mouths. It was very intentionally written. It was very specific. Um, lots of kind of allegory being thrown around. And I just kind of fell in love with it. And, and I've watched it quite a few times since then. It, it's also, to my knowledge, one of only a couple of science fiction film noir slap, genre benders that we have. Uh, maybe what, Dark Dark City? Maybe it would be another one, kind of. Yeah, love Dark City. Uh, yeah, I knew you did like that. And then <laughs> recently, there's a, a new show based on a series of books called The Expanse. The books aren't called The Expanse. The TV show is called The Expanse, and it's kind of a science fiction film noir as well. Um, so it's currently airing on Sci-Fi Channel, I think. But there's not a lot out there for this this type of thing, and so it was it was a unique deal. And uh, yeah, I, I fell in love with it completely on that second watch so the next thing i wanted to ask is what about cultural relevance so none of us saw it when it came out so we don't know what it necessarily meant at the time other than (laughs) james who might have some more film history than you and i do patrick but specifically now is there what do you think about the fact that we're getting a sequel for this now and is there something that we can personally pull out of this for what we deal with as a country, as a nation, as a, as people right now in our lives. Um, well, I, I definitely think it has cultural relevance in terms of the theme of valuing people, valuing those around us that are different than us. And this is not something that's been, uncommon in other movies that we've either covered or that we've seen in the last five or 10 years. I mean, the the X-Men franchise is a fantastic example of, you know, fearing those things that are different. But when we look at, when we look at the, this idea of what it means to be human and looking at people and understanding like why they are the way they are, um, valuing life, and what that means. I think that we're in a, I don't know if 24, what I love about 2049 right now is that the studio has not given really anything away from the trailers. Like we really don't know what this is about. We know that at some point, uh, Deckard is going to show up. (laughs) We know that it takes place 30 years after the first movie and that's about it. So the intrigue is from, and this is me speaking from the first time, in, in this world, but I think one of three things will happen. Either we'll get a rehash of the, the ideas in the story, which I don't think is going to be the case. We'll get a brand new idea that's taking these characters and using those characters to kind of catapult us into a new story in the world of Blade Runner, or we'll get sort of a mix of both. We'll get a little bit of, not nostalgia, but we'll get a little bit of connection from the first and still playing on the ideas of this this original story 
you know, when you, when you take an idea that comes from a book and you expand on it, you run the risk of either overdoing the ideas or, um, or, or not catering to them enough. And I'm, my hope is that 2049 kind of does a balance of saying, we want to bring this into the future and the future being not only 2049, but 2017 for us. And, but we don't want to lose the strength of what is being talked about here. So I think for Blade Runner, um, I think it was ahead of its time, but I'm only speaking as a guy who was three years old when it came out. But I think when it can hit on the same points and it makes you think about viewing others as not less than but equal to and questioning your humanity, that's a universal idea. That's been around forever. I mean, when you read literature, you 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 watch and even the days of Socrates, you know, it's always been this idea of why am I here? What's the purpose? What's the point? And, and it hits at the kind of the core of who we are as human beings. So I absolutely think it still has relevance now. It may not fit in terms of the digestion of, of visuals and things that we're, we've been sort of used to now with the, the, in, you know, ad, you know the, the, um, the, the furthering of technology and CGI and whatnot. But I still think as a, as a story, it has cultural relevance for sure. I think it was, uh, it was only in this latest round of a sort of study and research that I got to talk about it on a on another film night uh, that I realized some someone pointed out there is almost almost I think there actually is one or two faces in in the bar at the the nightclub the Deckard visits but there you've got a movie set in Los Angeles post 1982 so speculative future and there's almost no african american people whatsoever in the entirety of the film meanwhile meanwhile we have this slave race uh, this stand-in slave race that looks basically just like us but we're treating them like they're inferior and so i you know i wouldn't have thought a couple of years ago that we'd be in a place where that theme is so relevant i just the, the tensions of the last few years and the the seeming um, stronger polarizing of racial divide. I, I, I think it, it, this movie alone, 2049, we'll, we'll see, but Blade Runner itself, like, man, it, it's almost tragic that it is speaking so relevantly to problems we still have. So it's still, we still haven't overcome uh, on that base level. Now, now, sure, sure, we're talking about replicants, we're talking about androids, uh, but we all know we're not. Like Star Trek was notorious for that all the way back in the '60s. Like I think this this was always a stand-in for something. And I I think obviously coming out of the civil rights movement, right there, you know, over in the you know spilling over into the early '80s, I'm sure there was some of that uh, going through people's or Hampton Fancher's mind as they were putting together a screenplay. Uh, and so I I think that's always there. I. I do think we, you know, we, we have also gone through the phase of Skynet and Terminator movies, but now we're to an age when suddenly, you know, notable scientific leaders, not sci-fi leaders, but, but personalities in the fields of actual science are beginning to warn us against uh, developing artificial intelligence. So there is there's a bizarre new relevance to to this story and maybe a sequel in a weird way because we're we're getting to a place where where instead of being very excited about the possibility of having someone like data, you know, now suddenly it's, it's no Skynet is the probable outcome. And maybe we need to not make artificial intelligence. 
Yeah, that's a. It's exactly what I enjoy the most about AI stories is the idea of, you know, how, what is the risk versus reward of of trying to do that and ultimately trying to be creators. And I think you know, in recent years, we've had lots of advancement in science, like you said, and and part of that is in cloning. Even even cloning is something that they're continually pushing boundaries, trying to develop. Um, all under the guise of what's best for us. And it brings up these questions of, well, is that human? I mean, we even have this debate as a nation every single day regarding abortion. Is that a human? At what point does that develop, that fetus develop actual a soul? Um, it's not much different than what point does an android develop a soul? So um, it's, I think you can impart your own reading into the film in some ways to explore those questions uh, with cultural current cultural relevance i actually forgotten what year it was set in to be honest until it popped up on the screen and said 2019 and i was like oh that's two years from now like where's my flying car um back to the future and blade runner lied <laughs> they really did they, they really, really did. did um but there's so much james i love that you pointed out the the actual ethnic makeup because there's so much of an Asian presence. Mm. And I can't imagine that in 1982 we had quite the amount of Asian presence as we do now in mm. California. So it was almost prophetic in that way. Yeah. Um, like, like, then it was like, sushi? What's what's that? Right. <laughs> yeah. But, but, I mean, today, that works. I also, I also love the question about slavery and the comparison to how the androids are almost treated in a way in which slaves were i think that it's one of the the moral messages in the movie was is that it it was wrong to enslave the replicants and use them as forced labor so that because they were both human-like in appearance and thought process and so i was wondering if you guys had ever thought about this or if you did think about it while watching the film at all is there anything that you personally would suggest would make it okay? Like, like at what point? What do the replicants have to? What do the replicants have to look like and act like for us to truly be okay treating them as as workers and and as something we control versus as something we let be sentient and and automated on their own? Well, I think for me, if I'm gonna use that and use a replicant as slave labor or forced manual labor. Honestly, they can't have eyes. And what I mean by that is not that they're blind or that they, but when you look at a person's face, like when we look at people, the, I think we talked a little bit about this on our a war for the planet of the apes, Andy circus's facial expressions should give him a nomination for an Oscar because of the way in which he emotes with his face. And I think when you put a face to a name or a face to a body or a face to an entity, you automatically bring into question that person's value as an, as a lifelike, as a life human or otherwise. And, you know, it's difficult to separate that even when you know that a person is made up of either, or a, an entity is made up of either organic tissue and bones and flesh or you know pieces and parts of the 
you know, the, the microwave that you, <laughs> that you threw out a year ago. I, I love the fact that, uh, referring back to Battlestar Galactica, we have that connection of Edward James Olmos and Skin Jobs. We have that mm-hmm. that there because we're calling back, you know, BSG calls back to that notion that these are what they are. We can call them Skin Jobs, we can call them Toasters, we can call them whatever, but when you put a face to that, you've immediately created a new layer of connection to that thing. Uh, there's a show that's uh, co-hosted, I think it's like Channel 4, which is a BBC network uh, company and AMC called Humans. It's starting up its third season and it explores that. You have these, uh, we have a world where androids are used for various things. They're used as housekeepers and they're used as um, companions, let me just say it that way. And there's a series of of, of androids out there that have been given a special piece of sentient programming that allow them to feel. And so again, that's exploring that same idea. But to get back to your question, I think when it comes to slavery, I mean, if if I'm being just blunt about it, the less connection emotionally that you can have to something, the more likely you are to enslave it or make it do something that you want it to do, to control it. So if you can create something that's faceless, that has no name, that has no way of having identity, then I think you could succeed at that. Yeah, I think you pushed it all the way there. I, I was going to say, man, I, I was, as you were talking, I was remembering a couple of uh, anime called Apple Seed and, and even Ghost in the Shell character gets some replacement eyes. It's like not still doesn't it's not enough. <laughs> you just can't have it. Can't just it can't just not be the eyes uh, and that that whole face. But then you say, like, well, you know what? I've, if you remove the face, you still just have it's the voice. It's it's a little bit of of everything. And I, I think you touched on it, though, when you're talking about. Well, I mean, Battlestar, anything where we've had these other sentient androids, when when we are making them to replace aspects of relationship, intimacy, uh, when you're when you're wanting them to interact with us as peoples and programming them with that level of identity, I mean that that's the problem. Like, well, you, okay, you're you're trying to create them to replace us, but then you don't want to treat them fully as us. Well, that like at some point that line gets weird. So it like. They, you know, you want something to clean your house. It should only, it should have the capacity to clean your house. It shouldn't have a full personality chip to be able to pretend that it's a human being. That's, it seems like that's the slippery slope right there. The minute I think I, I want it to have a personality. Well, where am I going with that? Like that's, that's kind of the problem right there. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's an extremely selfish thing to be honest. I mean, we're we're thinking about ourselves, what we want, what we can do. We're not thinking about it. Um, I mean, some people treat their pets this way, to be frank, you know, it's, it's a, it's something that exists for our entertainment and we don't, we don't make choices and decisions necessarily based on the desire of the pet. We, we make them based on us. It's like, oh, well, if I made choices based on the desire of my pets, guys, I would never get off the couch because my cat would be on my chest 24 seven. And that would be that we wouldn't, we would never move. We would be together forever. Um, but I have to make a human choice uh, as opposed to you know something that I don't necessarily feel has the same level of human thought uh, and I have to decide I'm going to tell you now that you're going to be locked in this room because I need you to be locked in this room so that you don't make noise while I podcast right mm-hmm. and it, it's very similar to how we see androids treated in, in these stories and to some extent looking back to slavery um, and so I think it's it's fantastic that 
a movie from 1982 that is a science fiction film noir can bring up that kind of thought to where we can have that conversation again. Um, another one of the things I love that you brought up the eyes, Patrick, because the eyes are a huge theme in this movie in particular. I mean, constantly. Mm-hmm. I mean, heck, Tyrell dies by getting his eyes gouged out. Um, the, I, ju- I just do eyes. I just do. I know. I love. I love that kind. He's like, I just do eyes. Like that's all I do. Um, they go to the eye maker, right? Um, when they meet um, Sebastian, mm-hmm. he points out he that their eyes. He looks at their eyes uh, very closely, and it's almost like you know the, what's the old saying: the eyes are the window to the soul. Mm-hmm. And it, that's kind of how that we see it playing out in this film. Um, and so it it also explores the question of whether we can definitively distinguish between real humans and artificial intelligence or artificially engineered replicants. So if no test could prove this for certain, if there is no Voight-Kampt to say you are or are not a, rel- a replicant, in your opinion, does that mean that the replicant is human? Well, I think that goes back to the uh, Socratic idea. I think, therefore, I am. And... I mean, it's meant to be ambiguous. I mean, I don't ever want to try to answer that question definitively when it comes to movies like this, because I'm I'm right and I'm wrong at the same time if I answer it one way or the other. But I think that it raises a deeper question in that we then try to figure out what it is that makes someone human, because it can't just be a test. I mean, it's not like you go into the DMV of humanity and say, okay, we're going to have you answer these 10 questions. And if you answer 80% of them, then you can go on to the human portion of your test and we'll take you out on the road. We'll have you walk through the mall and see if you're going to, you know, pick out a certain pair of jeans. You just can't do that when it comes to, and I think what this film does is it, it tell it essentially it's trying to tell us, look, you can't test humanity. You can't test what it means to be human because you're going to, because it's not going to give you a definitive answer because even if you know, even if you've passed these, uh, these 15 or 20 questions, I think it was the conversation that, um, Rick was having with, um, I think maybe I can't remember if it was Brian or whoever, but he was asking about Rachel and how long it took him to figure out that she was a replicant. And he had said a certain number of questions and, and, and normally he says it only takes like a 10%, you know, he only does that in like 10% of the time. I don't know how it works, but what that tells me is that this film is basically saying whether it's 10 questions that you can guess that you can figure it out or a thousand questions, the point is not to get all the questions right or to say that's, this is what defines you as a replicant or not. But the fact that these can't define you because, you know, she could take the test again and answer all the questions correctly. That would, distinguish her as human so now is that is the is the test wrong or is he wrong and so i think it leaves an, a big gap of ambiguity that that is pretty much visually delicious to me i love that i love the ambiguity of it yeah, Tar- tarrell says uh you know it, the goal is more human than human yes. so i think like, if you keep engineering better and better i mean i could at what point are you nowadays you know, we have talks about cloning and other things so if you're if they're designing those cells like at what point is it just another form of of human creating human i mean it, 
you know, it, we've got the old fashioned method now, now as they make the replicants, like what, at some point, if you make one so good that there's no way to test, you know, except for maybe, you know, uh, you know, reaching in for boiling eggs or something, but, uh, you know, if there's no way to know, then it's 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 game over. You've done your job so well that now they they are there are us and that's it. There's anything else would be utter folly. So I mean that, you know, yeah. It it took over a hundred with Rachel, by the way. But <laughs> it's it's interesting to me and, and pretty fascinating that the defining emotion used to determine whether you're a replicant or not is empathy. Uh, and it, it always makes me kind of cringe because when I'm watching this nowadays, I think, well, goodness gracious, like over half of humanity would be considered replicants probably based on a lack of empathy. And so the movie kind of puts forth this idea that empathy equals human, right? It means to be human is to be empathetic. Um, and I, I, I like exploring that and trying to pick that out in the characters trying to see if the replicants are ever empathetic at what at which point would kind of signify that maybe they are crossing that line um which obviously we get from batty uh toward the end uh of the movie <laughs> so and before we before we talk about that scene in the end of the movie I, i'm curious the another main theme in this to me is that we can't trust our memories um and so it's, it reminds me of Memento because it's another great example of the question that what is the main reason we trust our memories as more or less accurate accounts of our past events? That's the question at the heart of Memento. And what would it take for us to question our own memories and our own humanity? And I, you see this. We see this in Deckard as he, he kind of wrestles internally with huh like what how do i know for a fact rachel rachel poses those questions to him she's like well have you ever taken this test <laughs> well, i don't have to take this test um we see this in ex machina another one of my favorite films from a couple years ago where dom hall gleason's character at one point he gets so confused that he's cutting himself trying to make sure like okay am i really human um he's starting to see those lines blurred uh, and i think the idea here is, you know, these memories have been genetically implanted. And so if that's your memories, um, at what point have you ever questioned your own existence? Either of you? Oh, totally. I mean, I, I mean, I probably one of the reasons this movie appealed. I mean, I was, I was definitely one of those college kids drinking coffee late night at Denny's talking about, you know, the, the, the intricacies of existential truth and historical truth. Like we, we say we believe things by science, but science cannot prove that it cannot prove that I'm not a brain in the jar and, or I'm not in the matrix or I'm not in any of the, there, there's no test to go out and scientific. There's no way to step out and actually prove that to myself. Same with my history, right? Yeah. What, what if, what if I am, if I'm not a brain in a jar, what if, what if I've been drooling in an insane asylum and all everything up till this conversation right now is, is just an invention in my mind. Like I, I, we obviously, a lot of the things we believe are, don't stand on the, we, we think we, we like to think in the 21st century, they're based on science. It's like, well, it might be reasonable and rational, but I can't prove it. So it, it ultimately comes down to belief and faith, at least faith in my own reason faith that I am being rational right now 
faith that I'm actually talking to Aaron. <laughs> yeah, I, I look at I look at that idea, and I'm reminded of an episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation where I love any episode that deals with the holodeck because I've always wanted a holodeck, just someplace I could just program yeah. Hawaii and walk in and be there. You know, yeah. so the, you you don't have one. I, you know, not yet. I, I need no. to go on Amazon and see Dude. if they still have it. Dude, they're awesome. You got to get one. <laughs> okay. I'll check on that after the show tonight. <laughs> but I was I was thinking about this particular episode, and at the very end, there's a moment when Barkley has it's, – it's like a holodeck within a holodeck or something like that. And at the end of the episode, he goes, computer in program, and nothing happens because, you know – Throughout the episode, you find that the computer has fooled the well the 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 crew has fooled the antagonist of the episode into thinking they're actually leaving the holodeck and they're really not. Uh, they're just going inside this little computer casing or whatever. And so Barkley at the end makes that statement. And I remember clearly one time a day or two later just saying those same things: computer and program, and kind of half wondering for a split second if something was going to change, like if, if I was in this holodeck type thing. And so I think that when it comes to questioning our memories or questioning who we are, questioning what's what's real, I guess that's another question that this is asking, is, is that it becomes very subjective. And all of our statements, and you mentioned this, when it comes to who we believe we are, what our faith says about us, whether it's our faith in ourselves or faith, faith in the computer that we're we're talking through or whatever, it comes down to the, to the, I think the two words to me, you know, this is what is real to me. Um, your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth. And I think that's probably what gives these, this cast of characters, the comfort that they have Deckard included, you know, Deckard has his own faith. I believe this, and this is real to me. Even when it's called into question, I think he falls back on that. I think these, replicants fall back on that well this is my reality and this is what i know to be true and in some ways i think like rachel we don't want to we don't want to believe that our memories are false that we're making stuff up i mean i was in an i was in a a car accident well a running accident several years ago and every time the story is told whether by me or somebody i know it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger so it starts out with me getting hit by a van and now it's escalated into a semi truck was looking for me and came to my house and ran to into my bedroom and completely like mowed me down, which is funny, but at the same time, it's also kind of how we think. We tend to amplify the things that either make us feel better about our life experiences or maybe downplay them, repress memories, things that might happen to us as kids that we don't really want to talk about. We don't believe those things. And so I think when it comes to questioning who we are and what our own reality is, it's really... We have to we have to be okay with the subjectivity of that. That, um, you know, for us in the faith based community, that's really our cornerstone. It can't be our memories or what we have quote experienced growing up or experienced in the last week or two, because those things will become subjective over time. You know, I may not remember this conversation fifteen years from now, verbatim, but I'm definitely going to remember that I had a conversation about this movie with you know, with YouTube people. So. 
Does that make it any more or less truthful? Well, in some ways, yes. In some ways, no. I remember the facts, but I don't remember the experience, so I can't talk to that necessarily. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I've, I've experienced this a lot as I've gotten older, and uh, you know, I, I can't necessarily remember things from a few days ago. And I've noticed that I will legitimately not, ha- not be able to define and, and for certain whether something happened. Did I do this thing? Did I actually, did that actually happen? You know, it feels like maybe it happened in a dreamlike way. I think that that was a conversation that I had, or I think that that was an action I took, but I, I don't know. Um, and, you know, Again, if, if memory is that defining factor, well, then we're all hosed because we're not going to have that, um, and we're going to have to go off something else. And so it it kind of leads you to the the sticking point of well, like you said, Patrick, is what you believe the truth. So if if I am a replicant and I believe that I am human, and I have the capab- I have the ability to to tell myself that or make myself programmingly act based on those parameters, am I essentially human Um, or as human as someone else? And then, of course, the only telling way to find out would be death. And what happens after that? Well, at that point, it's hard for anybody to to define that because that's going to be based on faith. And, and you're not going to come back and say, oh, hey, I'm back. And so this is what happened. <laughs> I, there is actually a replica in heaven. And I'm, <laughs> I'm good. Um, but I, The yeah. god of biomechanics will let you in. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, those, are, those are all things that I constantly think about every time I see this movie. And I urge people when they watch it to sit down and really give themselves the time uh, clear their heads a little bit. Don't be distracted, but let themselves fall away into the story and into the characters and really pay attention and really let themselves walk through this story. Um, it, it's one of those movies, my favorite kind of movies, that you can watch and put your focal point on a different storyline. So I can watch it and really, really zone in on Deckard's story. And kind of see the movie through his perspective. Or I can watch it really zoomed in on uh, Roy Batty. And, and kind of watch it through his perspective. And things things will change. Um, and little nuances you'll discover. And I, I love that about it. I think I, I, I've probably teed people up to see it improperly in the past. I, th- I think I did a pretty good job recommending it to a few people this year. Just really honing in on that. Consider this like a meditation. Like you, you are like this. This is a contemplative film. So I do. People default to you know Harrison Ford. They they think it's an action film. I just had to talk somebody out of thinking that it was somehow tied to the Wesley Snipes Blade movies last night. Uh, so people have no idea where this film's coming from because I I think re- you guys were talking earlier about not sure how it hit in 1982, but in 1982. It, it didn't catch on. For, well, one, there, there's a ton of reasons. There's a, a great history for those who want to dig deeper. But, you know, E.T. came out at the same time. People did expect it to, you know, sandwich between Han Solo and Indiana Jones. People, early reviews were poor uh, because people's expectations were completely different. And where it really caught on, I, curiously enough, was over, I mean, it, 
Japan and then anime culture really took a liking to the ideas of what it meant to be human. That's what Ghost in the Shell and other things were inspired by. And I think if you look back and think, okay, well, what was happening even then and now, they've usually been ahead of the curve on us with a sense of isolation, with a sense of depression, suicide rates. The idea of of who am I, what's my identity. When you look at every character in the film, from Deckard to J.F. Sebastian, all of them, for one reason or another, are kind of trapped in their internal lives and very mm -hmm. alone. Even Terrell yeah. in, in his suite seems everybody is utterly isolated and alone, except for, oddly enough, the replicants. And so I, I think... I think now in our face, just reading about smartphones and Facebook and, and a growing generation of teens, uh, much higher uh, depression rates, uh, suicidal thoughts, uh, all sorts. You know, I think in some ways, social media and all of the ways we have disconnected from real engagement and and that sense of isolation. And I, I think this film has a real culture, rel cultural relevance for the United States now that it, it lacked in 1982. And I think other cultures that were impacted by it then uh, were just in a different place than us that I, sadly, I think a lot of our culture is now. So I think mm -hmm. this, this film alone, let alone the sequel to come, it, yeah, is, is so much more relevant to the sense of, of, of an individual, not even sure about his own identity, not even really feeling like he's human because there's no interaction, there's no relationship with other humans. There's no sense of human community. Mm-hmm. Oh man, good stuff. Well, did we miss anything before we hit our connecting points? Is there any are there any other main topics or, or ideas that you guys wanted to discuss? Because I know, I mean, this is one of those movies you could just talk through forever. I mean, right. James James has done it so many times that he, it's probably still fresh for him because you get to to go through different topical discussions each time. Mm -hmm. uh, but is there anything specific you guys wanted to touch on? Well, I can't I can't not mention. I'll if I, I'll, I'll get mine out of my system is <laughs> uh, just you're talking about memories and you're talking about what and, and there's that there's that scene on the, the rooftop at the end I mean I, on my wrist I wear a wristband uh, I wear it every day it says it says all these moments which is just really riffing off Roy's all those moments line and I I think that scene may hit people differently but I mean for for some of us there might be that are, are all my what do my memories matter once I'm gone, what do they, what do they matter to me, to anyone, to anything? And, and also when you, when you look at how Deckard and other characters are almost uh, moving ghost-like through their own lives, are they appreciating those moments while they're living them? You know, there's, there's a vivaciousness to, to Roy and Pris. And, and so I, I think as we think about our memories or how do we trust our memories, but also just why are we making them and are are we truly savoring them in the moment um, before the rain comes? I, I it's just there's a that has always been, I mean, that that's sort of become my incorporated into this is sort of my 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 life mantras, if you will, right? This this as I wake up and I put that on, it's like all right, if if I'm going through, if I'm gonna have a hellacious day with somebody that's that's miserable and we're crying together or whether I'm going to go on roller coasters. Like both of those are experiences. I, I need to catalog and savor in the moment and collect the, all the meaning that they have, all the substance and, and, and just fully take that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, you, uh, you hit on something that I guess it 
it goes back to one of the big ideas in your book and the idea of when it comes to film, the active engagement in that, I think in the same way, the active engagement in our memories and being able to savor those things. I remember early on when I was listening to some of the teachings of, of Rob Bell, he, he said, he said, um, he used the phrase fully present when he talked about our relationships with people. And I think that that's something that I don't know if it's a theme within Blade Runner, but based on what you're saying, I think that it comes down to being fully present in what's going on in our head to be very aware of not just letting our minds drift when it comes to watching a movie uh, or reading a book or, or engaging with people, but letting letting our memories and letting the things that we are being allowed to experience or are letting ourselves experience become equally relevant so that we can discern so that we can say hey hmm this isn't really sitting well with me why is that instead of just saying hey this is weird uh, I wonder why that is and leaving it with the question of I don't know but there's this real value in active exploration whether it comes from experiences that we have and the memories they create relationships that we build and what their the investment in those things coming back to us is and in some ways I think that is sort of explored in Blade Runner where you know when Deckard is connecting with Rachel um, there's this at one moment when they when they become very intimate and he it was the weirdest thing to watch. He was saying, say this, you know, say, uh, put your hands on me and say this thing. And, and she repeats it back to him. It's as if he's actually trying to control what it is that he needs at that point. And it really kind of calls into question, well, is he really being human at that point? Because he, he seems robotic in that he's saying, I need this from you. So does what she says and what she, um, does she say and do is that really genuine in that regard i I actually took that away and said no it didn't really feel that way but to me i I look at that and i go okay so is he trying to control relationships or is he allowing that relationship to kind of allow him to question things and and um you know having those active memories having those active moments where you're consciously kind of in those and and not just letting them go by like a uh, like a passive experience i think is really important I think you. I, I love that. I, I love what you hit there about this. Just truly being present, and I, I think when Roy is running around seemingly crazy, I think he's forcing Deckard. Like Deckard's there on autopilot, just shoot to kill, mm-hmm. and he's just like, "Are you thinking about yourself in this situation? What What exactly are you doing? Are you Are you the good man? It's like, are, are you looking at yourself? Are you actually truly present in every way? He forces Deckard to sort of be in that moment till mm-hmm. they're sitting there, like from from feeling pain to to feeling life to mm-hmm. and then and then even when when he finally has that one moment and uh, starts you know swings the club at him and Roy's just like that's the spirit like it, it's like <laughs> you you need to feel again you need to be real and alive in this moment because mm-hmm. well because he knows he's not going to be he kind of wants to impart that to someone. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. part of why he breaks his fingers. I think I don't, I don't think it's necessarily to stop him from holding a gun. It's to you, <laughs> you, know, you, <laughs> you give him a jolt of pain, which kind of makes you present again. It's like okay, mm-hmm. feel this, yeah. be here, and realize this is happening, <laughs> and this is not just you know. There's a reason for this, and mm-hmm. yeah, that scene's that scene is phenomenal. It, I think it gets better for me every single time I see it. Um, you know, knowing that Rucker Hauer improvised it and just kind of made up those words is pretty phenomenal because it fits so perfectly 
Like I believe that sea beams um, and the gate, the two gates of Tarnus or whatever it is. Um, <laughs> Tannhauser. Tannhauser. Thank you. Tannhauser <laughs> gates. Thank you. Uh, I believe that those places exist in that moment as he's talking. Mm-hmm. And I've always loved the fact. <laughs> I always pick up on little things each time I see it, but I love the fact this time I was kind of chuckled when I was watching as he says. You people, <laughs> he says. You people. you people wouldn't, be- you know. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. And I'm just like, hey, that's like a not an okay term to use these days. <laughs> um, one last thing I want to point out or recommend to you listeners everywhere is that if you get a chance to see this in a theater, uh, if if the 4K restoration that was recently done comes to a city near you, do it. I watched this movie for the first time in a theater last Friday, and oh my goodness gracious, I'm afraid it's probably going to make it difficult to go back, because having seen how gorgeous it is, um, the sound, everything about just seeing it in that huge format, it was amazing, and I I have to highly, 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 highly recommend that. Um, I know, Patrick, you probably don't get that kind of cool stuff. Yeah, just rubbing it right in my face here (laughs) in the heartland. (laughs) Thanks. So I went to a dollar theater. (laughs) Um, Real quick, I just wanted to throw some love at Vangelis. I thought the soundtrack was really good. And and I say that as a big fan of Chariots of Fire, outside of the main theme that's so iconic, I didn't really care for the soundtrack there. I thought because of – it felt not out of place, but because of the, I guess, the time frame of the movie and whatnot. But for this, for Blade Runner – Van- Vangelis's score and his style was, I think, spot on. There were moments that the soundtrack completely enhanced the scene for me. I didn't know really what to expect from Vangelis outside of Chariots of Fire, but I thought this was very much an organic marriage of film and soundtrack. So props to props to uh, to Vangelis for for making for making this one and also james hong plays a character named hannibal chu i thought that was just great great stuff on the casting choice in terms of of character names i don't know if that was from the uh the philip k dick book but fantastic the fact that you called him hannibal chu spelled c-h-e-w that's so great <laughs> it's interesting i've actually just been reading the book this week i'm almost done with it it's the first time i've ever read the book and there's quite a bit that's different actually and i mean deckard there's no identification that Deckard is married in the movie, but the book literally starts with him and his wife. Um, well, well uh, if we're talking Final Cut, but... Well, that's... Okay, that's true. <laughs> Good point. Um, and, you know, there's there's a much much more of an explanation. I mean, whole chapters that go into depth about why the book would be called Do Androids Dream of Ex- Electric Sheep? Um, of course, it's, it's, like, very briefly mentioned in the movie, um, but that's another fascinating topic that's hit on in the book and and they don't call them bla- uh, replicants either i actually love the change from the book the book calls them andes short for, <laughs> andes. for, and- yeah. short for androids which is i just yeah i can't imagine like thinking culturally like of all of these years people talking about blade runner and is deckard an andy you know it just doesn't doesn't have the same ring andy to it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a so. tough read. Philip K. Dick. Philip K. Dick is an idea man for sure. I I cannot. I'm sure somebody's gonna hate me now, but I for for all of my love of Blade Runner, I reading several different Philip K. Dick novels. I I love the ideas, but 
man, the competition, the composition is, is a tough read. I, I it's, it does not struggle. Flow. Yeah, no, yeah. it's not. It's not the most enjoyable thing to read. I completely agree. I, I simply am enjoying it based the, from the perspective of, oh, what's different? Yeah. Uh, more so than I am like, oh, this is a really intriguing, like fast paced read. There's there's better stuff out there for that. All right. We always like to leave one thing for our connecting point and uh, to quickly spoil it for everybody. Uh, we have all chosen the same scene to talk about in this section. <gasps> oh, shocker. Um, so I'm going to lead us off and just say that the connecting point for all of us this time around was Roy Batty and his interaction with uh, Terrell and eventual murder of him. But everything that kind of encompasses that whole scene. Patrick, I'm going to let you start since this was, you've only seen it once. And so you, you have kind of a, a one, one time viewing and I'm curious what it looked like through your eyes. Well, the first thing I'm going to just say is uh, Roy Batty has all thumbs to me. You know, he is uh, just, <laughs> <laughs> he gets two thumbs up for me. Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm, I'm done. No. Okay. I'm done. Sorry. <laughs> I was waiting for it. No, I, I am, I'm very unapologetic about how this scene connects me with my with my faith and the fact that how incredible it would be to, at some point, and with my faith, eventually meet my maker. What's interesting though is that I probably wouldn't say or do half the things that that Batty is doing in this scene. And I think that that's where the intrigue is with me because what it does is it says, it asks the question, what would you do if you could say anything to your maker face to face and have a legitimate response? And, you know, we, in our, in our faith community, we talk about prayer and we, and we know that we have these, you know, we have these conversations with, with God, but this is a, this is a physically played out thing where, where, where Batty goes in and he says, I'm going to have this conversation with you. And for me, I look at this and I go, everything about what Batty is saying is human. It is a human reaction to everything that he's felt. I mean, I felt, (laughs) I guess this makes me human. I felt complete empathy for him in that scene because I wanted to ask those same questions. I'm going, here's a guy who is saying, I want more life. I don't want to be limited. You have the power to do it. And there's this reaction by uh, Terrell that says, sorry, I can't do that. How would that make me feel? I mean, how just unbearable, how distraught. I mean, I can't even find the words of how that would make me feel. And as, as just gross and just to me over the top of what I see Batty do, it almost seems at least emotionally justifiable that he says, okay, if you are unable to give me what my, what I need, what I feel like I need, and you are my maker, then you have no more purpose. And I didn't even see that coming. I didn't see that kind of, not, not even, not just the way he died, but the fact that he was killed. I didn't see that happening. I didn't know what to expect. And the way in which I see Batty just value wanting to live as long as he can. It's not just about the duration. It's about the quality of that. I feel like when he says, 
when he realizes you have this limited lifespan because of how I created you, it's almost as if Terrell was saying, your purpose is finite. You have this purpose and that's all you're going to be valued as. And you are, uh, you are disposable. You are, you know, nothing more than what I've created you to be. So to receive that as a character, I think his reaction was incredibly visceral, incredibly emotional. I don't want to say controlled because I felt like the way in which he killed Tyrell was very much out of control and you could sense that. And so connecting with that on an emotional, spiritual level, I think was something that I hadn't experienced in a, in a movie in a while. I think the last time I experienced that was in some ways, um, a scene in equilibrium, which I won't go into detail with, but mm-hmm. it's a similar kind of thing and uh, with a different different outcome. But I, I didn't expect it. And I think the, the surprise there was what made me enjoy it the most from an emotional level is that I could really be in that visceral moment with Batty as he's taking this all in. What about you, James? Yeah, I, I'll start at the end. I think that, that a masterclass in acting could be taught watching Rutger Howard descend in the elevator after what he's done. Because in, in that moment, with absolutely no words, you see exhilaration, followed by uh, this this almost questioning, like, what what did I just do? This sense of, of, of wonder and question, to a sense of sorrow, to a sense of revulsion with himself. There, there's just this wash of emotion that goes through and you see every facial ch- and feel, I think they talk about visceral, every change in him because, because you're not right. He was out of control in that. And he's, he's coming down off that joy of that, just that moment of, of just reeking, like getting all that emotion out in that, in that scene where he both kisses and then, and then kills. It's, it's, it's this unbridled fury. And it, I mean, that to me takes me all the way back then as he's walking in. I mean, that's takes us all the way, all, me back to Shelley, right? I mean, this is, this is the creature talking to Dr. Frankenstein after like, what, what have you done? And I, I can't think about it in terms of, of, of meeting my maker. Like from, from my, my, from my perspective, like the minute he says something's beyond his jurisdiction, then even, even Batty's becomes a little sarcastic when he when by the time he he calls him and by the time he says nothing the god of biomechanics wouldn't let you into heaven for there there's this smirk and he's already become somewhat disgusted with this this shell of a maker and especially you talk about things being eyes and he walks in and and the maker wears these massive coke bottle glasses like his your maker's vision is impaired Hmm. and and everything from that is the absolute disappointment of realizing your maker is not God. I just like, then so far down, even self-admitting it's, it's beyond me. He mm-hmm. can't give him anything that he wants. And he is finite. He has, he has no transcendent offerings. He's just as subjective as Roy. And so it, it's that moment like you're, yeah, you're, you're no better than me. And in fact, inferior, uh, that, that goes more toward those, those fears of, of AI and sky like what what if what what do we do when what we've made realizes it is superior to us because we're so deeply flawed we're mm-hmm. uh, and 
And then to see that, to see that boil up, and then the, the real human emotion. I mean, like, why does he even need to to kill? So, like, I genuinely want to believe that that they were at least somewhat amicable towards Sebastian. And then it's just he he's riding he's riding his fury so much that he he just takes him out. To, like, just there wasn't a great reason to do that. And it's just so that there's there's so much going on with him, and I think proving I think that more than the Void Comp test, you you just proved that that he's he's more human than human, and and deserves as much. I mean, they, they, the the point of the film is made right there, even though what happens is so horrendous. They they make them so human in the film, you kind of forget they slaughtered twenty three people. It's mentioned so briefly to to get to Earth. It's like they they're capable of everything, just as deeply dark and as deeply moving and and beautiful as humans are man yeah you guys are you guys are touching on <laughs> on all of it um <laughs> I'll, I'll mention a couple artistic touches that i love about this scene emotionally i'm right there with you it starts off with a chess match i mean roy <laughs> batty essentially makes the chess moves mm. to beat tyrell and I feel like that's not an accident, right? You're, you're, he's setting himself up before he walks in to have already, already won. He's already won the mm-hmm. battle, right? The, the battle of wits or, or whatever you want to call it. And then the way that the scene is framed with Terrell laying in this bed, um, he's, he's wearing this white, completely white nightgown. Um, and it's, he's surrounded by white in the room and candles lit in the background immediately made me feel like he's like Roy was walking into a church. Hmm. Um, and of course, you know, you, you push that further to, it's almost, you know, using the word father, uh, could, there could be dual connotations there, but it, it, it's almost like he's, he's going in to confess as well in a way, um, not just hmm. to ask for something from him. And, I also love that Roy specifically calls out and says, it's not an easy thing to meet your maker. Like he, he says it right up front and it, and it can't be, it cannot be easy. It has to be challenging. It has to be scary. Um, even if you, you know, you have expectations, but I, I just, I think about that from our faith perspective. Um, there is an awe that is encompassing there. It's not, it, not necessarily a fear of a scared fear, but a, a justified, you know, healthy fear <laughs> um, of meeting the maker. You know, in our faith, we're going to stand before God and he's going to tell us yes or no. Right. You're in or you're out. And Roy Batty's kind of doing that right here. He's standing before God and saying in his God and he's saying, you know, can I can I continue or am I am I doomed? And he's being told, no, sorry. You're doomed, um, and so it's he's he's got yeah like you said he's he's just extremely disappointed in his maker and I I don't know what that would feel like and I hope that I never do I don't think that I ever will um, it's it's also the scene really hits home for me this idea that what if you didn't have anything else because. All of this is based on the fact that Batty doesn't have a future. It's either, you know, when when he knows, he knows the moment that he is going to die. And how how must that change the way you live your life? 
if you knew the moment you were going to die? How would that change the way you and I lived our lives if we knew exactly that at age 43 in April, on the fifth day at 7 p.m., we were going to die? Would we do different things? Would we make different choices? Absolutely. <laughs> right? <laughs> now, would all of those be for the better? Probably not. Some would, some may not. Um, but it's just a completely different way of living your life. And um, gosh, it's it's so powerful. And, and, and I, like you, Patrick, I'm, I'm extremely empathetic for him in the yeah. moment, all the way up until he kills him. Almost, almost, almost justified, you feel like. Yeah. Um, and then you pull back and you realize, no, uh, that that's not. But yeah. yeah, the scene is the scene is incredible, and it, it it's definitely for me the one that I respond to the most. Something that I thought about with regards to that scene is, and what you said, Aaron, is I wonder how the scene on the rooftop would have played out had he not met his maker, like had he not confronted him, would he have changed? Would his motivations have changed? Would he? have allowed Deckard to to die, what what would have happened? And I feel like in some bizarre, tragic way, he became somewhat empathetic towards Deckard because of his encounter with Terrell. I don't know what that end result is. I'm glad that it's sort of left ambiguous. But I'd like to believe that even through this tragedy, his redemption was really amplified in that moment with Deckard and and I think that makes him a very at the very least an interesting character to say the least I think he's a incredibly round character at this point because I feel like he's had a character arc even with the I guess I don't want to say the limited amount of time he had on screen he had a good portion of it but he could have easily just been an angry uh, Andy <laughs> replicant <laughs> and we could have just left him at that but I think it makes the moment on the rooftop that much more significant because of his encounter with his maker that he didn't have to do what he did and he chose to make that choice and I think it has more weight because of the encounter that he had with Terrell yeah I do too I mean it's it's almost like confessing on your deathbed right mm -hmm. you, you realize your moment has come he even you know he says time to die like he knows it's it's, it's ticking um, I, I think one of the most powerful visuals in the movie is him with his hand and it starts i don't know if you noticed but there's one one or two times very early in the film when you first meet batty where he does the same thing with his hand and you don't realize it until at the end when you realize that's a kind of a tell like oh he's he's having trouble actually controlling his hand like he's mm -hmm. shutting down and so in that moment he knows it's about to end and yet he still is asking for forgiveness knowing that there's nothing beyond and like how how powerful is that for those of us that actually have potentially something beyond right that we believe in um how does that impact the way that we should spend our last moments or every moment because we don't know when our last moment's going to be I, it's it's deep <laughs> it's deep okay well um on that heavy note uh wow uh let's see Anything else? Anything else that we missed that anybody wants to touch on? We good? <laughs> well, we haven't had the big debate. Oh, is Deckard a replicant or not? And maybe we don't have to. 
It depends on uh, what cut you read. You watch. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Well, pe- people make arguments for every cut, both directions. <laughs> so it's. I, I. I think we almost now have to wait to see if twenty forty nine supplies anything new confirmation new a, a third angle we're not expecting I, I don't know yeah i'm you know I, I guess let's end on that so expectations for 2049 what <laughs> what do you how how could it possibly live up for you to this one specifically you james to where it's not a letdown and it doesn't retroactively do some sort of harm like Example, example being don't, don't they, tread on my dreams. Exactly. Example being if they define Deckard and answer that question beyond a shadow of a doubt, does it take something away from Blade Runner for you? I, it it really it no. I mean, in, in at the end of the day, that uh, what I think of sequels in this new era of everything's being adapted, rebooted, or sequeled. You know, I, I kind of had to just make a decision. I, I don't remember what movie it was. I, honestly, I didn't think much of, of Ridley's latest Alien entry. And I just think, you know what? I, I enjoy the movies I enjoy, and nothing is going to somehow rob it of... You know, there have been books... There were actually a couple of books written after the Blade Runner movie, sequel follow-up books to the movie, not to Philip K. Dick's novel. So there... They've already been, you know. You look at Star Wars, same same deal. Yeah, which which canon do you agree with? You know, I would. I I think we we live in a great era where we can have more of this. But you know what? If you want to view it as supplemental and and you want to embrace what you liked before, that's great. I kind of hope. I I love that Ridley Scott. I I actually do have high expectations because he's put it in the hands of a director. Um, my gosh, I, I'm gonna I mispronounce his name every time I try to say it. Denis Denis Villeneuve. Thank you. He's one of my favorites. I I had to learn it, but that's yeah. It. the The fact that Ridley entrusted this to uh, a a newer but extraordinarily nuanced director, I I think there I can't really imagine it in better hands right now. And so I I think he's going to give us something that it's a new vision. I and you know what? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to lose any sleep at the end of the day because at the end of the day, it's just a movie. But. Uh, but this, had, you know, it already had its profound impact on me. That will never change. If twenty forty nine is is a curiosity, or if it is truly a furtherance that 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 makes this another landmark in my soul, then you know, I, I'll take either one of those. I I have a hard time thinking that I'm going to not enjoy it on on some level. And I, I think the, from the casting of Gosling is I. I kind of can't believe I could have cherry picked all the best things to have happen as far as who's coming together for this film. I don't know if I could have done any better. I mean, I, I probably wouldn't have made any different choices. Uh, it's like when they cast, you know, when I, I remember my wife and I dreaming about, you know, who would we like to do a Batman movie? Chris Nolan directing and Christian Bale as Batman. And it actually happened. <laughs> I, I somehow prophesied that. But uh, so I, I, I have... I'm trying to. I, I have great expectations. I don't think they're too high. I don't think they're too low. I, I think it's going to be an enjoyable weekend. Yeah, I'm. I'm the same way. Um, I'm. I'm super excited. I, the the pro- positive buzz that has come out about it so far, I've stayed away from. I heard just enough, a couple tweets to to be happy, and realize that it kind of put to bed a lot of my fears. The the three short films that have come before, I think, are brilliant. I, I love all of them, and. I adore Jared Leto as an actor. I know some don't. He's a he's an acquired taste for many. 
Um, but I think, especially after watching this short film that was released, uh, re- that shows him in his role. Um, oh my goodness! Like I could not, <laughs> I could not have cast him better. Like it is, he is going to be phenomenal. I think. So you and, do recommend watching all? I, I've oh actually, yeah, I've, there's no I, spoilers. You should actually. They they are recommended by Denis. In fact, he introduces each of them briefly. Um, okay. I, I highly recommend it. They are, and they're all good. They're all different. They're very very different tonally. Um, but you will, I would think, enjoy them very, very, very much. And they, they don't spoil anything. They're good supplemental material. Same for you, Patrick. I would watch them. Okay. All right. Yeah, I'll check them out this week. And you listeners, everyone out there. <laughs> if, you're, if you're listening to this before, you know, Blade Runner 2049, before you go see it. So, All right. Well, gentlemen, uh, this has been great. It's always kind of scary when you're doing one of your top four or five movies of all time. It's number four for me, James, not quite number one. But um, you never, you always want to make sure you do it justice. And, and this has been an awesome conversation. I'm thankful for you, James, for coming on. And uh, Patrick, for you diving into this with me for the first time. Um, I'm sure it will not be the last time you and I have a conversation about this. Probably <laughs> whether the, not. Yeah. Whether the mic is on or not. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, to wrap up, James, why don't you tell people where they can find your stuff? How can they contact you to talk to you if they want more of your insight? And where do they get Cinemagogue information as well? Ooh, well, there's uh, if you can figure out how to put cinema and then G-O-G-U-E dot com, uh, you can find reviews, uh, uh, audio podcasts and events and, and re- written reviews there. Uh, the book's available on Amazon.com. You can get there f- from the website or just, just look up that name. Not a lot of books uh, competing for the name Cinemagogue on Amazon.com. So you can look up the book there. And there's a Facebook page for Cinemagogue too. So uh, you can uh, – I'll be sure to make – I'll be sure to post and let people know to check out this episode of Feeling the Film there too and see what comments we get. Great. And you can also – James occasionally will be trolling around the uh, Feeling Film Facebook group. Uh, so uh, if you see him commenting there, feel free to jump in and, and talk to him as well. Patrick, what about you? I'm always on the big three, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find me at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. Or you can find uh, more about me at thisispatch.com. got some new writings on some of the films that we've covered, uh, looking at the faith aspect of it. So if that interests you, go ahead and check those out. You can also check out more about the show itself at feelinfilm.com. We've got uh, all of our podcast episodes up there, along with minisodes, some feeling it's, and some uh, great writing from our contributors, Don and Steve and Jeremy. So please feel free to check that out. Leave us a comment, um, and just keep listening. And for me, you can find me everywhere at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E, uh, on Twitter, also tweeting out of the Feelin' Film Twitter account, uh, active in the Facebook group. I'm there all day, every day. And uh, let's see, next week we've got Blade Runner 2049, shocker, but uh, we'll also have some thoughts from me on an unexpected entertaining <laughs> film. God, just, so you guys aren't going to, yeah, you're going to do this to me now. See, I can't talk about it because I'm embargoed. Like, I, the movie is so good. Oops, didn't say that. But it's, 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 out, it's, uh, it's surprising and I can't talk about it yet. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have some thoughts later this week uh, dropped as a written review and then I will discuss My Little Pony a little bit before we talk about Blade Runner 2049 <laughs> listen there's a unicorn in My Little Pony and there's a unicorn in Blade Runner so it works what 
Made in the your dreams, literally. The in your dreams, literally. <laughs> <laughs> so, listeners, hope you'll tune in next week, and that won't turn you off. If it does, you can just skip the My Little Pony part if you're, you know, that touchy about it. The My Little but, Ponies are replicants? Yeah. Oh, now that's going to be what happens on social media. Everybody's going to be like, Aaron said My Little Ponies are replicants. That's, that's going to turn into that. Okay. I may have to gouge my eyes out if I read that review. <laughs> <laughs> With two thumbs, right? With two thumbs. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, gentlemen, again, thank you so much. It's been a blast. Really appreciate it. And uh, listeners, we hope you've enjoyed this one. Feel free to come to the Facebook group, hit us up on social media, email us at feelandfilm at gmail.com, and let us know what you think. Uh, Let us know what you thought about Blade Runner and if we missed anything that is very important to you. We always like for you to come tell us what your connecting points are. Uh, There's a post every single week with the episode, and we would love for you to drop your connecting point in there so that we can all talk about those further because that's really our favorite part. Until next week, stay positive and keep feeling film.